Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. Just in case you missed part one of this two-part series, an approach to acute motor weakness, here are a few outtakes. Neck flexion weakness, which would have similar innervation to the diaphragm, is a very good thing to check as a poor man's way of deciding whether your patient's in trouble. Most of them tend to be hypokalemic and they tend to be exacerbated by high carbohydrate loads uh, or exercise. And if you can remember that, then you can make this rare diagnosis. The abrupt onset of a stroke is pertinent for either cardioembolic stroke or thromboembolic stroke. But a small vessel stroke, you know, that might give you hemi body pure motor syndrome or hemi body pure sensory syndrome, they can often have a very slow stuttering onset. And that can often be very misleading because as an emergency room physician, you're thinking stroke, hyperacute onset. We learn that stroke comes on quickly, but subcortical strokes due to small vessel disease often have the stuttering onset. Amazing. If the bladder's spared, it's unlikely that you have a spinal cord problem. Of course, this is a generality, not always. I love it. So associated symptoms after you've sorted out the pattern of decreased power. Number one is left hemisphere stuff like dysphagia. Number two, right hemisphere stuff like neglect. Number three, we're talking brainstem, so diplopia, difficulty swallowing, etc. Bulbar symptoms. Mm-hmm. Number four, spinal cord, and really the hallmark there is bladder dysfunction. And finally, absence of reflexes equals a neuropathy until proven otherwise. Tachypnea is a sign of impending respiratory uh, failure because as you become more weak, your vital capacity and your tidal volumes decrease and you compensate by increasing your respiratory rate. This is part two of our two-part podcast series on acute muscle weakness. In part one, we threw out the word weakness and instead zeroed in on the specific symptom of loss of power. We dug into the patterns of decreased power and how they can narrow our differential. We discussed some of the key associated symptoms that will narrow our differential further. We simplified the distinction between upper motor neuron lesion and lower motor neuron lesion. And finally, we talked a bit about lab tests and lumbar puncture. In this part two, I'd like to look at a few key diagnoses and discuss their key features so that we can nail down the diagnosis of the patient who presents complaining of muscle weakness. The first diagnosis I'd like to discuss is Guillain-Barre syndrome. So if you remember the case that we presented at the top of part one of the 49-year-old who developed paresthesias and decreased lower extremity strength after getting COVID, that's Guillain-Barre syndrome. So Guillain-Barre is an autoimmune attack on the myelin sheath. It's an acute, symmetric, ascending, progressive, peripheral polyneuropathy. I'll say that again. It's an acute, symmetric, ascending, progressive, peripheral polyneuropathy. So Dr. Porphyrus, before we get into the diagnostic clues of GBS, why is it important for us to know about GBS in the first place? 
Well, GBS is the most common cause of neuromuscular weakness that we will see in the emergency department. And it can be deadly. Even in the best of hands, there's still a 5% mortality. One third of the patients will need to be intubated and ventilated. And if they are intubated, they're going to end up in the ICU for about five months. If they're not intubated, it still entails a five-week admission. The good news is that by the end of a one year, about 85% will make a full recovery. Okay, great. So it's common, it's deadly, and it takes up an ICU bed for a long time, even longer than COVID, it sounds like. So GBS is an important deadly diagnosis for us to pick up in the ED. Dr. Baskin, what are the kind of key clinical features and clues that will help us clinch this diagnosis? Um, yeah, so I think the sine qua non, without which there is not, um, of GBS is areflexia. So the reflexes are lost very early. And if the reflexes are present, you're not dealing with Guillain-Barre syndrome. If you're suspecting it based on the history and the presentation, I think you want to focus your exam on trying to elicit the reflexes, and they'll be lost in an ascending order. Ankle reflexes are often difficult for people to elicit. And so I think people are not as confident with ankle reflexes as they are with other reflexes. And spend your time trying to get the reflexes. Great. Any other tips about how to get reflexes? I mean, you had mentioned in part one that we all have trouble with reflexes and some patients we just can't get reflexes on. Doesn't mean they necessarily have Guillain-Barre syndrome. Any other practical tips Dr. Perfiris or Dr. Baskin, about eliciting reflexes? Passively control the patient's limb. So like if you're checking the knee reflex, you want to firmly grab the foreleg so the patient can feel that you're in control of the limb. That helps them relax. And then you want to get the, the knee into the optimal position to check the reflex. Sometimes I find the patients are very tense in the emergence. And one technique that I found useful is distraction. I get them just to, you know, count backwards from 100 subtracting sevens. And they sort of focus on that. And for some reason, I seem to be able to get the reflexes easier when they're not just sitting there thinking about the reflexes. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the key clinical features. So the one thing Dr. Baskin has mentioned already is the absence of reflexes. And we all know that it's sometimes difficult getting uh, reflexes in patients, especially older patients. Guillain-Barre does tend to be in younger patients. So that's the reflex part of it. What else in terms of the clinical diagnosis? Uh, Dr. Perfiris, what are some of the kind of key things that you ask for Guillain-Barre syndrome? I think it's almost always going to be an ascending pattern of weakness. So it usually does start in the feet and work its way up. Checking for a sensory level will sort of rule out the, the transverse myelitis or any spinal cord problems. The other thing that they may have, and I'm not sure if it happens right away or if it's something that we'll see later in the ICU, is the autonomic dysfunction. Um, I think it's probably later on, but the autonomic system goes wild. So you have tachycardia and bradycardia, hypertension and hypotension. Uh, you may get bladder retention, and these can all lead to serious uh, morbidity. All right. In terms of the classic story is some sort of preceding viral illness, like in our case that we presented at the top of, of the podcast, number one, the patient had COVID and then developed Guillain-Barre syndrome. Dr. Baskin, is there almost always a viral-like illness? What are the viral illnesses that more commonly precede it? 
Um, are there any viral illnesses that we should particularly be thinking about Guillain-Barre when someone presents with weird neurologic symptoms after? What do we need to know about this sort of preceding viral illness thing? So in Guillain-Barre, this can be quite an issue. So I think the first thing I would say, especially in the age of vaccine hesitancy, is that the association between Guillain-Barre syndrome and vaccines, the flu vaccine, is almost negligible. I think the the risk is something like one in a million. And so the, I want to call it the myth of it occurring after vaccines, it probably doesn't occur with any more frequency after vaccines than it does in a baseline frequency in the population. So that's the first thing I think that's important to just dispel. A lot of people have that that conception, a lot of patients. So there was like almost epidemic prevalence of a kind of Guillain-Barre syndrome um, that only affects the motor system in China. I think this was in the 1970s, if I'm not mistaken. And eventually that was found to be due to preceding Campylobacter jejuni infections, which causes a gastroenteritis. So I think that's the one infection, um, a gastroenteritis that you want to ask for. Many people report a preceding viral, like URTI type illness before Guillain-Barre syndrome, but it's hard to know if that's recall bias. It does sort of make sense with the presumed pathophysiology of the disease, which is molecular mimicry. The immune system mounts an immune response against some pathogen and then confuses it with the poor nervous system, who's the innocent bystander. But I certainly wouldn't rely on that as a diagnostic hook to hang my diagnosis on. Um, those preceding symptoms of an infection. I think you get yourself into trouble there. I mean, you know, equally transverse myelitis has a similar presumed pathophysiology. All right. So often a preceding viral illness, particularly gastro like Campylobacter, but not always. And again, it's extremely unlikely to be Guillain-Barre if they have normal reflexes. Also, if they have a sharp sensory level or asymmetric weakness, these are things that make it a lot less likely to be Guillain-Barre, correct? Yeah, and I think it's good to just kind of explicitly state that the differential diagnosis that you're working against with GBS is a spinal cord problem, because both of them are going to cause acute bilateral lower extremity motor and sensory dysfunction. And so the other thing that you can use to distinguish them is bladder dysfunction, so George is absolutely correct. You get autonomic instability with GBS. Usually the bladder portion of that comes later, whereas in a spinal cord presentation, usually bladder dysfunction comes early. So if there's bladder dysfunction early on in the patient's symptomatology, it's more likely to be a spinal cord problem than GBS. All right. And Dr. Baskin, can you comment on the paresthesias and the sensory exam when it comes to GBS? My understanding is that often the sensory exam is objectively, even though they're still complaining of paresthesias, you know, it's one of the favorite questions that the, the internists and neurologists like to ask us when we have a patient with paresthesias is, you know, is this a really objective decreased sensation or are they just complaining of paresthesias? Is this true that uh, in GBS early on in the disease, they can have definite paresthesias, but with a normal sensory exam? Yeah, I think that's true. You have some nasty consultants that you're <laughs> dealing with there, Anton. I think 
I'm going to just say for all intents and purposes, the sensory examination is basically useless unless your patient's complaining of specific sensory dysfunction like numbness on the uh, you know ulnar side of the hand or you think the patient has a radial neuropathy. That's one case where it's helpful, like a, a peripheral neuropathy. And then what George said, looking for a sensory level in spinal cord dysfunction. But if you're now taking a broken tongue depressor or Q-tip and checking sensation on your patient's feet, you're basically wasting your time. It's so subjective. Um, and I think people intuitively know this. So I would put the patient's complaints far above any sensory examination you're doing. If the patient's complaining of tingling and numbness, that's enough for me. They have a sensory problem um, in this context with GBS or a spinal cord problem if they have motor weakness. I think doing a sensory exam is a waste of time, to be honest, in this situation. As you say, the sensitivity is very low. And also, it's very hard for patients to tell you whether they feel the pin more or less distantly or proximal while they're tingling. So it's a very difficult thing to sort out. I think it's a poor test in the scenario. A little bit of review there. So GBS, it's acute ascending, progressive, demyelating, peripheral polyneuropathy. It's a little bit of a mouthful. It is a clinical diagnosis. Most of them will be preceded by a viral-like illness, uh, especially gastros, but not all. Deep tendon reflexes are pretty much universally absent. If they have good reflexes, that pretty much rules it out. Often they'll have normal sensation on physical exam despite complaints of numbness, as Dr. Baskin was just describing. And sometimes, especially later in the disease, they'll have autonomic dysfunction. So they might have sinus tachycardia, bradycardia, fluctuating blood pressure, et cetera. And we did mention in the last podcast that uh, on the lumbar puncture, if you're doing that for whatever reason, that you're likely to see elevated CSF protein with normal cell counts. All right. We haven't talked yet with GBS about the sort of really big, bad emergency problem that happens with GBS, and that's the respiratory problem. So some of these patients will develop diaphragm involvement. And as we mentioned in podcast number one, about one third of them will eventually require mechanical ventilation. We've talked a bit about airway management in uh, neuromuscular patients, uh, how to modify your RSI, et cetera. What are the specific indications for plastic in the trachea for mechanical ventilation in patients with GBS, Dr. Perfiris? As we talked about in the part one of this uh, segment, tachypnea is sort of the early warning of impending respiratory failure. So if you have somebody who's tachypnic and yet despite that still has a normal O2 sat and a normal PCO2, that's an early sign that this patient might need to be intubated. The usual stuff that we look for in, ter in terms of an airway exam, so uh, inability to handle secretions, drooling, voice changes, choking while swallowing, inability to keep your head up or keep your head or inability to lift your head up off the stretcher. And as Roy had said earlier, weak uh, flexor uh, muscles of your neck. These are all signs of impending respiratory failure. Once you see this, then it's time to call your RT to come down uh, and they can use objective measures 
And the, again, the mnemonic for remembering this is the 20-30-40 rule. So if your vital capacity is less than 20 cc's per kilogram, or your negative inspiratory pressure is less than 30, or your expiratory pressure is less than 40, these are all indications for intubation and ventilation. Fantastic. Great review there. And Dr. Baskin, although we won't be starting IVIG or plasma exchange in the ED, I think it's good for us to know what meds do benefit patients with Guillain-Barre and what the literature says, like what, what the latest thing is on treating these patients. What does the in-hospital treatment look like for these patients and, and why is it important to nail down the diagnosis as early as possible in terms of the timing of that treatment? Yeah, I think as George pointed out at the beginning of this section on GBS is, you know, it can be devastating with prolonged hospitalizations and the complications of severe immobility. And so, you know, the idea behind both plasma exchange and IVIG is to get rid of the bad acting antibodies. You know, in most community hospitals uh, in our milieu, um, plasma exchange isn't immediately available you know, to require transporting the patient to a center that has plasma exchange. So IVIG is much more widely available. It probably is equally effective. I think some people would probably argue that plasma exchange is more potent and quicker. But generally speaking, we use IVIG first. And then if that's not working, um, we can revert to plasma exchange I mean, it gets complicated. Your plasma exchange can remove your IVIG you've given, so sometimes we wait. But yeah, the earlier you intervene, the better. You want to try and avert the patient going into respiratory failure. The importance here from an emergency room perspective is to diagnose Guillain-Barre syndrome or its differential, a spinal cord pathology, early. Both of them require early intervention. In GBS, you want to try and remove or neutralize the pathological antibodies early. So the earlier you give your IVIG or institute plasma exchange, if you're at a center that has it, um, the better for the patient before they get into real trouble requiring the ICU. So early diagnosis is important. And you know, often there's a delay in the diagnosis before they've come to land in your emergency room, they've gone to a walk-in clinic, a family doctor with the maybe earliest symptoms. So by the time they are in the eMERGE, they're probably a few days, maybe a week into their illness. All right. So suffice to say that although this can be a difficult diagnosis to pick up early, it is important that we pick it up early because the earlier we pick it up and the earlier they start the treatment, uh, the more effective that treatment will be. There is a long list of differential diagnoses to consider for Guillain-Barre type presentations, but I just want to highlight one or two of those. Dr. Baskin, you already mentioned transverse myelitis, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but I, I want to talk about tick paralysis. It's, of course, much more rare than Guillain-Barre, but people are talking about Lyme disease all the time, coming up on springtime now, so Lyme is going to start coming again. Both tick paralysis and Guillain-Barre have ascending paralysis as, as one of their features. So Dr. Perfiris, how do you distinguish Guillain-Barre syndrome from tick paralysis? Excellent question. Tick paralysis is caused by a neurotoxin 
that's found in the saliva of female ticks. So basically, they, the tick latches onto you and slowly starts feeding on you. And it takes actually a few days before the neurotoxin is absorbed by your body. So it's not immediate. It can take anywhere from four to seven days after the, uh, the, the tick sort of latches on. And this neurotoxin inhibits presynaptic acetylcholine release uh, in the motor neuron. So it's actually very similar to botulism. Clinically, it presents more in kids than in adults. So that's one key differentiator. You see it much more in kids because kids have smaller masses and the neurotoxin therefore is more concentrated per kilogram. Kids also tend to be sort of more playful and they're running around and playing in the woods and and getting in contact uh, with these ticks. It presents with ascending paralysis, but often the first sign is ataxia and irritability, which is also a little bit different from Guillain-Barre syndrome. The timing, like you said, Anton, it's usually spring and summer, because that's when people are outdoors and when the ticks are active, as opposed to Guillain-Barre, which is year-long. It's very important that you make this diagnosis because the treatment is so simple. It's basically find and remove the tick. And if you do this, the patient will recover their strength, usually within you know six to 12 hours, and it's, it's quite miraculous. And unfortunately, sometimes these are missed. Uh, patients are often diagnosed with, with Guillain-Barre syndrome without doing a proper physical exam, especially in young kids with long hair. They don't tend to look in the scalp. And sometimes these are found post-mortem, unfortunately, which is obviously a devastating situation. Anybody you diagnose with Guillain-Barre, especially if it's a child, do a head-to-toe exam looking for a tick because this is a life-saving diagnosis. What a great pearl. That's great. Easy enough to do as well. And the second diagnosis that sometimes gets confused with GBS is transverse myelitis, as Dr. Baskin had mentioned. Transverse myelitis, I find that clinically in my experience, that usually ends up being a diagnosis after the patients that I'm thinking about, uh, spinal cord compression, I'm thinking about you know, a spinal epidural abscess, or I'm thinking about like Mets to the spine or a Aquina syndrome or something like that. And then their whole workup is kind of negative and they're admitted and get an MRI and it turns out to be transverse myelitis. So that seems to be the most common kind of scenario for transverse myelitis diagnosis that I see. But sometimes transverse myelitis can present similar to Guillain-Barre. So Dr. Baskin, can you just review for us sort of the similarities and then how to differentiate Guillain-Barre from transverse myelitis? Sure. So I think the first thing to say is like transverse myelitis is kind of a dumb name. I mean, what does that mean, transverse? It means across myelitis, inflammation of the spinal cord. So inflammation across the spinal cord. So transverse myelitis is an inflammatory myelopathy. Guillain-Barre, we could call, you know, an inflammatory neuropathy. So we're just talking about inflammation of the spinal cord. So I think that it's important to define the terms because often we assume we know what we're talking about when we use these terms, but often the terms are very misleading. Some are historical, some are with people's names. Okay, so I think uh, transverse myelitis can be idiopathic or it can come in a post-viral fashion similar to Guillain-Barre. Or it can be a syndromic presentation of MS. Often it's associated with pain that coming from the spinal cord. So that could either be like, say, a Lermitz phenomenon if it's in the cervical spinal cord or a corset-type radiculopathic dysesthesia in the torso if it's in the thoracic cord. Um, again, often bladder dysfunction is an early symptom Reflexes in the lower extremities will not be depressed. They'll be normal or increased. 
and then you may you may have dissociated motor and sensory symptoms in the lower extremities. So we don't have to get into like the complex neuroanatomy of the spinal cord, but just very simply, if the right side of the spinal cord is inflamed, you're going to affect the sensory tracts coming up on the right side of the cord and the motor tracts going down on the right side of the cord. So in other words, you might have sensory symptoms predominating in the left leg and motor symptoms predominating in the right leg. So in other words, there may be like a confusing picture in the lower extremities that you won't get with Guillain-Barre, which would be more symmetrical. So yeah, number one, local signs in the cord, like the lermites or uh, radiculopathic pain, the reflexes, pathologically disinhibited reflexes like an upgoing toe, what George mentioned earlier, checking a sensory level. And then I think you use all of those things together to make your diagnosis. It's a bit dangerous to try and hang your hat on just one thing. And so then I think one more important distinction between an upper motor neuron, say transverse myelitis, and a lower motor neuron, say Guillain-Barre syndrome, is what I mentioned earlier in episode one, the distinction between upper and lower motor neuron. So if you have a transverse myelitis, you may not be as weak in the lower extremities as you are with Guillain-Barre, but your movements may be slower. So slowed foot tapping, feeling that the legs are heavy, you're not walking properly, but you're not that weak. Whereas Guillain-Barre syndrome, lower motor neuron weakness, more profound weakness, and uh, that corticospinal type slowing that you get in the spinal cord, not present unless you can't move the limb. Great review there. Excellent. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade really wants EDs to know that they can offload all the burdens of scheduling during this pandemic, making now a better time to bring them on than ever. Metricade has established nearly 100 new COVID-related schedules in the last year, including backup schedules, screening clinics, and mass vaccination clinics. In my city, they manage some of the largest mass vaccination clinics, which is really convenient as it gets everyone's schedule into one platform. Their system is agile and handled everything that was thrown at them since the start of the pandemic, and they're a great partner for whatever lies ahead. Go to metricade.com slash emcases for more details. That's a bit about GBS and how to differentiate GBS from tick paralysis and from transverse myelitis. There is botulism and a whole long other list of things, but I think we don't want to overwhelm listeners with a million different uh, diagnoses. Let's go on to our second case. A 30-year-old woman presents to your ED with her husband at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night. She noticed the morning prior while brushing her teeth in the mirror that her right eyelid was a bit droopy and that it had gotten worse throughout the day. Her husband has noticed that her voice sounded a bit more nasal than usual, but she doesn't have any URI symptoms. She also complains of generalized weakness of the arms and legs, and she noticed getting out of the car that it was difficult walking into the ED. She's had no change in her vision, no difficulty swallowing, no limb weakness, no dizziness, no fever, no headache, no rash, no eyelid swelling. On exam, her speech sounds normal to you. Pupils are equal and reactive. She does indeed have a slight ptosis of the right eyelid with no swelling or erythema or tenderness. 
Cranial nerve exam is otherwise normal. Gait seems a little bit slow, uh, but otherwise pretty normal. There's no pronator drift, and Romberg is normal. So, Dr. Perfiris, before we talk about the specific diagnosis in this case, let's talk more broadly about ptosis. So, what's your differential diagnosis of ptosis, and how do you kind of sort through it in your head? In the emergency department, if patient comes in with, I would start with unilateral ptosis, I would think of two things, either a third nerve palsy or a Horner syndrome. So there's two things that basically hold up your, your eyelid, and, and it's mainly the third nerve. And if it's a complete third nerve palsy, you'll have a dilated pupil. And as all eMERGE docs know, that's usually a sign of a, an aneurysm, uh, specifically the posterior communicating artery aneurysm. So that's your main rule out there. If it's a pupil-sparing third nerve palsy, then you start thinking about things like diabetic. It's usually some kind of ischemic phenomenon. The other thing is Horner syndrome. So Horner syndrome is ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. And this is a disruption of the sympathetic chain. And from an eMERGE perspective, the most common thing that we'll see this in a, a cervical artery dissection, specifically a carotid artery dissection, since the sympathetic chain sort of hitches a ride with the, uh, the internal carotid as it sort of loops its way back up. If it's bilateral ptosis, then you start thinking about sort of neuromuscular things like myasthenia gravis or botulism. So that's your differential diagnosis of ptosis. Let's go back to the case. This 30-year-old woman was sent home with a follow-up appointment only to return to the ED three days later with cough, shortness of breath, and difficulty speaking. She's now in your acute area in a stretcher on a cardiac monitor. She's a little bit drowsy and tachypneic with a respiratory rate of 30, but looks like she has poor inspiratory effort. Oxygen saturation is okay at 93%. She's tacky at 125. So Dr. Perfiris, what are you kind of thinking now? What's your next move? She's showing a lot of the signs that we talked about earlier about impending respiratory failure. So she's tachypneic at 30 she has poor inspiratory effort. She has difficulty speaking. And even her O2 side of 93 is sort of trending downwards. Uh, so these are all signs of impending respiratory failure. The, the one thing that we didn't talk about earlier is the, the fact that not all of these conditions need to be intubated. And actually, myasthenia gravis is the one where you could definitely try BiPAP first. So in this case, I think we probably called the RT down and get them to put this patient on BiPAP and see if that improves the respiratory status. Of course, if it fails, then you would have to intubate. Dr. Baskin, aside from us calling you to intubate the patient, any suggestions of how you'd uh, approach this patient? Yeah. So I think, you know, to firm up your diagnosis, a really quick and rewarding test to do is to try and make her, once you've uh, done your A, B, C, E, D, F, Gs, then you can go down to the N, the neurology. <laughs> uh, so one good test is to do sustained up gaze. Um, so hold up your finger and have her look at it. So she's now straining her upper eyelids wide open, and she's straining her eyes to look up and you tell the patient, this is going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to have you do this for about a minute. And in a patient who's got acute myasthenic crisis, I would say here, what you probably see is a significant worsening of her ptosis, and maybe you would induce diplopia. 
you'd say, you know, are you see one finger here? Are you still looking at one finger? And then the patient will tell you, oh, I'm starting to see two fingers. They might be, your finger's getting bigger, it's separating. So that's fatiguing and very easy, weak muscle to see, which is the upper eyelid and the extraocular muscles. They're, it's easy to see when they're weak because you can see the ocular misalignment. And then you can try and reverse the weakness by getting an ice pack from the fridge and putting it on the patient's orbit. And you hold it there. And I tell the patient to hold it there for a minute. I tell them it's going to get very painful. They're going to get like a little bit of a headache from the ice pack. And now the patient's resting the eyelid because the eye's closed. And the cold temperature is stunning the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. So you're artificially boosting the acetylcholine level. And then you remove the ice pack and the ptosis is magically gone. And it's a very, very impressive very, very easy and very, very specific test. That's the ice pack test. And you've made your diagnosis. You look like a genius. The patient thinks you're amazing. Your neurology consultant uh, will be humbled. And I mean, after all, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to impress the neurology consultants. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's a really good, quick, easy test to do in the emergency room to diagnose myasthenia in someone who has ptosis Great. So that's the ice pack test and the extended gaze testing are two very quick things that you can do to pretty much rule in myasthenia in the patient that does have ptosis. And you had touched a little bit upon the pathophys for us. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the pathophys just so that we get a better understanding of what we're dealing with when it comes to myasthenia? Absolutely. Do you mind if I do this in an accent, Anton? <laughs> Go for it then everyone will remember. So myasthenia gravis is really like soccer. The acetylcholine are soccer balls. And what the body's trying to do is get the soccer ball into the goal. The goal post is the acetylcholine receptor. Now, in myasthenia gravis, what you have is too many bloody goalies. The goalies are blocking up the goalpost and the soccer balls can't get in. So what you have to do is try and use uh, immunomodulatory treatment or mestinon to either get less goalies or more soccer balls so the soccer player, who's the nerve, can connect his soccer ball, the acetylcholine, into the goalpost and make the muscle move. That was very confusing because, of course... English don't have soccer, they have football. <laughs> and I wasn't sure, you know, usually when people speak, speak in an English accent, they sound a lot smarter, but you sounded much stupider, actually. <laughs> okay, I'll just do it in my regular accent. Yeah. No, no, that was, that, that was funny. No, it's good. Okay. No, it's okay. We got, we got, we got the, the picture there. So that's a bit about the pathophys. Let's go back to the early stages of myasthenia and talk about some of the subtle symptoms and signs that we should ask about and check for so we can make the diagnosis before they need the plastic in their trachea. Uh, Dr. Baskin, what are some of the more sort of subtle signs and symptoms besides like a subtle ptosis 
that can tip you off that you might be dealing with myasthenia gravis. Yeah, so most myasthenia presents with ocular involvement, and then a lot of it stays ocular, and then some of those patients go on to get generalized myasthenia. So really, diplopia, um, double vision, with reading, with driving, with watching TV, or before COVID going to the movies, um, where your eyes are concentrating on one thing for a long period of time, inducing double vision. So that's one thing. And then ptosis. And sometimes those things precede the presentation to the emergency room by months intermittently. And so the other way of picking that up is the patient's been to the eye doctor because they had double vision. They went to the eye doctor. When they're examined, everything's fine. That's often a typical story. Okay. So the typical story you'll get out of that in terms of fatigable weakness is they'll develop diplopia after watching a screen for a long time, or the muscle weakness gets worse with exercise, or they find that they're chewing their dinner and they find it hard to chew after a while. Any other kind of typical stories that you get? Yeah, you know, often these patients, they're more likely to be confused with having functional problems because often they'll have complaints, but they look perfectly fine. You know, I've seen that quite a few times where the patient was thought to be functional because they're complaining of quite significant weakness. And then when they're examined, they look perfectly fine. And so, you know, repetitive shoulder abduction is a common motor test to try and induce weakness the same way that you're inducing weakness with sustained upgaze. So... If the patient's giving you a story that sounds like muscle weakness and they're perfectly fine now, it's really incumbent upon you to try some of these provocative maneuvers, whether that's extended gaze testing or repetitive abduction of the shoulder or or what have you. Dr. Perfiris, any other uh, clinical pearls when it comes to myasthenia? I think the, um, the, I mean, the only other thing that goes along with that is that it's usually worse at the end of the day, and they're usually fine in the morning, just in terms of the, the timing of the symptoms. And it's also a descending type of paralysis. So typically, like Roy said, it starts with the eyes, and then it's ketosis and diplopia, and then slowly it may work its way down, and you may get some dysphagia or dysarthria, or, or they, you have a nasal voice. And then worst case, it goes down to your, and paralyzes your lung muscles. So there's two Fs in myasthenia gravis. There's fatigability and fluctuation, and often we conflate them. The fatigability is the the weakness as you're using the muscle, and the fluctuation is, you know, some days you got it and some days you don't. I like that, the two Fs. Okay, so that's what we got to know about myasthenia gravis in the ED. There's a long list of differential diagnoses, again, but one of the diagnoses that gets confused with myasthenia a lot is Lambert-Eaton syndrome. It's quite a bit more rare, but I think it's worth knowing about just sort of the the basics. Dr. Perfiris, how do you distinguish Lambert-Eaton syndrome from myasthenia gravis? Starting with the pathophysiology. So as Roy said, myasthenia gravis is a problem with the postsynaptic acetylcholine receptor, uh, and it gets worse with use. Lambert-Eaton is a presynaptic problem. So there's, there's antibodies against the presynaptic calcium channels, um, and you need your calcium. So every time there's an action potential, calcium gets influxed into the presynaptic area and sort of fuses with the vesicles holding the acetylcholine, and you need that calcium to release the acetylcholine. So paradoxically, they actually get better with use. So with exercise or with repeated use, the strength actually gets better. 
And that's because you're priming the pump. So you need to get five or six action potentials to allow some calcium to build up for the release of the acetylcholine. Clinically, these patients tend to be much older, and it's usually associated with oat cell carcinoma. And unfortunately, a lot of these patients will pass away from their lung cancer and not from this disease itself. The only other thing I think we didn't really mention was the ages for Mycenae gravis. So there's two peaks. The classic one is the female in their 20s and 30s, but there's also this bimodal peak, and it affects men in their 70s and 80s, which... uh, I was not aware of until I saw an 80-year-old that came in with first-time myasthenia gravis in the eMERGE. Great points. I can see why George won all those teaching awards. Yeah, that was a great explanation. Beautiful. Well, we're nearing the end of our two-part series on acute muscle weakness in the emergency department. Any other last words of wisdom, clinical pearls or pitfalls that you'd like to leave our listeners with? We'll start with you, Dr. Perfiris. I think one really interesting condition that you will see, and initially you might think the patient is making this up, ciguatera poisoning. Uh, And we see travel to the Caribbean is very popular. And a lot of times these patients will go down there. And the pathophysiology here is it's from large reef fish. Uh, and they ingest these dinoflagellates. So it's also a neurotoxin. And the chief complaint is usually bizarre. It's hot, cold reversal. So when, you, when I first heard this, I thought the patient was sort of making this up. But they said everything that was hot, they touched it, felt cold. And everything that was cold, they felt hot. And the other distinguishing feature is they feel that their teeth are loose and they're going to fall out of their skull. So those are two sort of pearls. If you hear that, the patient's not crazy. They have ciguatera poisoning. And it's a, it's a neurotoxin. That is some awesome trivia. And Dr. Baskin, any uh, last pearls or pitfalls or words of wisdom? Yeah. So my pearl is often people have a hard time eliciting the extensor plant response because the patient's very ticklish. They have a lot of withdrawal. And so if you remember that the quote-unquote Babinski reflex or Babinski response is a disinhibited reflex to a noxious stimuli There are many different noxious stimuli you can give to the foot to elicit the reflex. And my favorite one, which gets away from the patient um, being ticklish or withdrawing, is to grab the fourth toe and pinch it very firmly so it's kind of painful, and then forcefully move it downward. It's a very reproducible, awesome way to induce an extensor plantar response. And in a patient who's got an extensor plantar response, Um, doesn't require a key or a reflex hammer, gets past the ticklish patient's feet. And um, I can tell you about the other 11 of those uh, if you listen to my podcast. Thank you so much, gentlemen, Dr. Perfiris and Dr. Baskin, for your incredible insights into the wonderful world of weakness. If you want to listen to more of Dr. Baskin on a variety of fascinating neurologic topics, his very own podcast called The Encephalopod is being launched around the same time as this podcast is being published. And his first episode entitled Your Motor Exam is Weak, which will be a deep dive into doing an effective and efficient motor exam that we introduced in this series. So thank you very much, good sirs. Thank you, guys. Thank you as well. George, I'm going to have you do an episode about 
since it's a cephalopod, which is an octopus, going to have you do an episode about dangerous fishes of the world. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring some calamari over you. Yeah. <laughs> How do you like it, grilled or fried? Yeah. 